So for some of you that may be familiar with choral passages, titles to songs that were penned, I could probably ask you who sang it, what does it mean? There's a little bit of kind of a change or a twist on it. But the title today is important, I think, because of the material that we cover. And the Lord wants to cover us as we move through the important understanding of doctrine and principles. And if you've been a part of the beach study, the emphasis is that in Proverbs, it is a book of morality. It is a book of contrasts. It is challenging because in it there is also what we would say our enigma, the mystery of what God is saying to us through practical advice that made much sense to that generation years ago. But God isn't apologizing for what is for us at times the necessity to mine the truth especially when there is contrast. And the contrast is between choices made, consequences rendered, and blessings that are granted. And so that's why we're going to be in Proverbs for today. I think it's a great message for us. Getting back to the title, nothing from nothing is nothing. And then there was to be a dot, dot, dot in the publishing, and then... It was to say what it says, but something. Nothing from nothing is nothing, dot, 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 but something. And so the question would be for us, what's the something you get out of nothing? If you're mathematically minded, you would be able to say with empirical certainty, nothing. Zero times zero is zero. Zero times any number is zero. Nothing. You get nothing out of it. But the Lord also would say, but I also work from the finality of what is nothing. Because I created something from nothing, I can take nothing, and I can make something beautiful out of it. If it's simply the title, it has somewhat of a depressive connotation to it. And it's intended to, I think, challenge your mind maybe put you into a higher state of contemplation. What does this guy mean in his titles? Okay, getting back to some of you that are game showers, Jeopardy contestants. It came from a song that was penned by Billy Preston, who was a notable American black musician, and he was actually in claim to fame with some of the big guys in rock and roll. The Beatles most notably used him, surprisingly, because they heard him tear the keyboards off. He played the Hammond B3 or whatever organ that was very popular during that time, and he became initiated. He was actually considered by at least Paul McCartney and some of the others as one of the Beatles, an American Beatle. What I wanted to tell you, though, too, is that he was highly spiritual. You're not going to necessarily find it in the song if you look it up. Nothing from Nothing, I believe, is his song. Because in it, when he comes to the something, which again was a bit of a letdown to me, he's going, girl, you got to give me something. Girl, you got to give them nothing. 
That generation had challenges with morality. And even though it's not necessarily implying what I did, God would say, give me your heart. Give me your all. Let me take from what others perhaps have said about you and make you what I've intended to do. That goes the same for guys, guys and gals. We're growing up in a world that intends to seduce us from the call of God who attracts us. Because if you study the science of culture, of sociology, you'll find that it's in cycles always. Men and women groping for what will bring satisfaction. And I believe that the Rolling Stones have been permitted to live so long because they did sing a song that has meaning proverbially. I can't get no satisfaction. And they can't. And they never will. And God's grace is suspending what inevitably awaits them or what awaits all of us, which is death. One member has gone before him, that was the drummer, and about 65, one of the original rhythm guitarists, actually probably a lead, but mostly rhythm, he passed away. The passing away, even as we've looked at in something that's close to our family here in the church, is an inevitable but what we want to be able to say in the conclusion of a life is did they get the something that God wanted them to be able to confess so that it is different than the nothing that the world offered them that was their pursuit. We looked at a lovely letter that Michael penned to mom and dad who testified of their parenting as being excellent in rearing him in the way that he should go. He was able to confess that he had failed as a son. He was able to profess that God had not left him and that his desire was to get back with the Lord on the path that he was to follow. Very concise, a salutation of love to his parents and a happy birthday wish to his mom in the event that he would forget. It was a beautiful, if you would, almost journaling of the pilgrimage, but he is where we will be one day too. And so when we look at the Proverbs, we need to understand it is a moral document it is intended to help us in the parallel of contrast that when we look at something, there is a right and wrong, there is good and evil, there is God, and there is the sinister nemesis of the work of God, and he's real, and his name is Satan. He is not your advocate. He is an adversary. He is a grievous distraction in the things that he employs to move us from the center of God's will.
Let me read with you something that I also believe is important with regard to drawing our attention to what we will run across. And I'm taking this from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm asking you to direct your eyes to verse 12 because this tells us about the something that God wants you to know is worthy of both possessing and to understand that in the finality of your life, there will be some things that will be irrelevant because they will have been burned up and there will be some things remaining that are precisely what God wants you to retain and to not lose in the process. In the 12th verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, hopefully in alliance with nothing from nothing is nothing but something. If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as through a fire. Really important to know this isn't God changing his mind about you, his heart for you, his determined destination of you. The only way you can miss is by rejecting Jesus. One of the phrases that was used yesterday was taken from Isaiah 49, in which the emphasis is that you've been inscribed on God's palms, the palms of his hands, have an inscription in which your name has been written. It was important to say that because you know what he doesn't have on the end of his scriber? He doesn't have an eraser for you. When with sincerity you have given your heart and life to the Lord, the inscription remains. There are things that will not remain and those are the things of wood, hay, of the stubble, He'll remove that because it has no place in a palatial area known as heaven. He works with what he has given to you. He desires that all that he has given you suffers no loss. And the only way that loss can be possible is if you add to that, which he has no need of. That's why the call of God right now is so important to us. And it's not works that get you there. It's faith. But as Bobby was teaching us, the works that we do demonstrate that the faith that we have that's been proven and the trials and testings that we go through are impressive to God because it means that we have been elected by the inscription that he's penned by our names on his palms and he's saying, I'm going to try you. I'm going to test you. And the story that comes from the episodes that I bring you through will be worthy of declaring. 
when you can't, someone will. And we had people that declared from the perspective of them seeing the Lord through Michael's life, how he impressed them and how God most notably marked them too for change. Have they perfectly changed? Probably not. I had three people that walked out. Not on Michael. They walked out on me. That's okay. They can't outrun God. That's what I know. So this is right now establishing why it's important to have a moral understanding as we move through Proverbs. That's what I've been teaching. Chapter 9 is actually the beginning of when Solomon lays out moral arguments for choosing God and to reject the world and the lies of the enemy. And again, some of you could say, but Solomon did not do so well. It is true, which makes it even more tenable to understand what he said. Because if he being the wisest man at that time on the face of the earth, no one that would be likened to him following, and that's true, could err, then certainly you and I, with limited wisdom, have the same opportunity to fail the things that God says, I want you to succeed in. It's a beautiful story that I've penned regarding your life. I want you to manifest success and victory. But if not, I got you because I have Solomon. The things that happened following Solomon are tragic with regard to Israel's history, but he's got Solomon. He's got you. Important to know. Okay, let's get into Proverbs chapter 12. And we'll see how far we can go. Being mindful, nothing from nothing is nothing but something. It is either going to be revelatory to the Lord bringing insight to you through consequence or blessings to you because of grace and his mercy. Whoever loves instruction, verse 1 says, loves knowledge. Love is in the air. I can feel it all around. There's the love boat. Most of us want to be on that. You don't want to be on the Titanic. Some of us have been. Some of us may be. That's a sinking ship that had been predetermined that it was unsinkable. We are on the ship of salvation. And as Solomon opens up in chapter 12, he's saying it's worthy to be instructed. But there's something that's interesting how he knits in the second portion of this a very necessary word in a time in which our culture says, I don't care about that word. I don't care about correction. I want permission. I want permissiveness. I want promiscuity. I want what it is. I want because I want it. And the title again, coming back to it, would say nothing from nothing is nothing 
but the something that you get, you have no idea the consequence and the choice that was made. See, the choice always should proceed with honor to the Lord and sacrifice to our wants because of what we know God is doing, which is good, always intending to do good. The thing that we always miss is the consequence that remains hidden until the moment thereof, because God's right. That sin, unless it's dealt with, will deal with us a hand that we did not expect, a hand ultimately that comes against us as opposed that reaches out towards us. God's hands that have our names on it reaches down for us to pick us up. But so often we want somebody else's hand and it doesn't work. It's found in this where it says, if you love instruction and love knowledge, which we do, ask yourself the first F you saw on your report go, did you love it? No, you hid it. It was actually shame to you. That was an important mark actually to be met with, to be sobered by. It's important to understand that failure is intended as a corrective tool to say, change, move up a notch, move from F to D, move from D to C, move from C to B, move from B to A, move. I failed several courses in college. I ran to the mailbox every summer day to intercept my OSU report card because I had a good hunch that some of those subjects I had failed in. And the last person I wanted to see it is my father who sponsored me in college. And rats, I missed the mailman by that much. And I'm seeing my dad go up the driveway, moving through the mail, nothing interests him except mine that had that big classic orange OSU and the beaver logo. And I'm going, my tree is going to get taken down. I'm damned. That's beaver down, not damnation down. Okay, so just cool it. Stay cool. He tears it open. He had the authority. He's my dad. He sponsored me to college. Oh, Lord, don't let this happen to me. He let it happen. Dad stopped. My cheap talk didn't work. Hey, Dad, you want me to start the sprinklers up for you? No, nah, we're okay. You're going to say something, aren't you? Yeah, I am. I just noticed something that you're trying to distract me from seeing. You failed? Did I? Uh-huh. You got a D? Did I? Yes, you did. What in the world are you doing up at Oregon State University and getting an F and a D and those basic subjects? I don't know. Well, you better know because your next term is going to be determined by your change now.
So my dad was an educator. He was also a Marine, but at this time in his life, he was an educator. He determined that he would work as an educator until the day that we would graduate from college. Guess who didn't graduate from college on the date that was determined for his retirement? Me. The long walk, the correction. I didn't hate it, but man, I was humiliated by it. And I said to myself, I've got to change. I just didn't know how to change. It seemed like I was at every class, so my thoughts were, I'm stupid. But I knew that couldn't be totally right because I assessed many of the things that I had become through my father and mother, who were very intelligent, raised me. I knew that I couldn't be totally a failure. It's just that in this season of my life, I did pretty good about turning from the discipline of being a good student to being one as a distracted student, not too difficult to see in colleges today. He who hates correction is stupid. You see, though I could look at the grade, the F and the D, and say I'm stupid, God would say you're stupid if you don't take correction. Your stupidity is qualified by denying the correction that I want to give you. And the Lord would say to me, and did whisper, in a time in which I really wasn't seeking him, you can change this. You're humiliated for a time, for a moment. But if you humble yourself, if you purpose yourself, you will extraordinarily achieve. And so I remember that in that time, long driveway, and then into the kitchen, because who was in the kitchen? Mom was. And she was cooking up something good, but the Lord also had her cook up an opinion about my <laughs> failure. And so the meal wasn't quite as good as I had hoped it to be. And I don't think I got dessert like I wanted it to be. But I got my just desserts. I got what was necessary in that moment in which a moral change needed to take place for the ethics of having been invested in. And so you know the story. I can compress it. I went back and I said, nothing's going to distract me. It didn't happen overnight because I was on a journey. I moved from OSU up to um, Mount Hood Community College in Gresham, Oregon. It was there in which I walked into a classroom and quickly walked out when I found out this math professor was going to test me in my skills. I hated math. And I walked out on her. But that math professor hunted me down in the hallway and said, you get back here right now. Why? Because we want you in this class. Aren't you going to be a teacher? I don't know what I'm going to be. You get back here right now because I want you in this class. And you sit down in that chair. And if you have any problems in which you're humiliated, I will give you counsel. I'll help you through it. You get back here and sit down, corrected again, as I fled for my own pride because I was stupid. So as I sat down, took the tests, I did much better than I thought. Not as great as it could have been, but enough to say I can get through this season. 
Mount Hood Community College led me back to OSU. OSU led me again down that long driveway. <laughs> Rich, what did you do now? Dad, I'm sorry, but it's only one bad grade, not two. You're going to community college in this town. What do I do? Doesn't matter, but you're going to do better than going up there. So one year in a community college, the long and short of it, is through a series of corrections, I ultimately gained discipline through humility and humiliation, and I became ultimately a public school teacher for nine years. And I actually, in my area of subjects, which were nine of them, I did really good with math, by which I was terrified, because in being, in my opinion, a failure, I learned to understand how to convey to a student the principles of mathematics, even when, in their minds, they were failures at it. Pretty good in English, pretty good in reading. I actually was a failure. I repeated second grade. And that was something I hid. My brother and I had a pact. We would never tell anybody that we failed until eventually it served us to tell people we failed, but we succeeded. You feel like you're a failure, you can succeed. That's verse one. I think it's important to note that in order for this title to have a meaning for you, you've got to have this idea that's presented that even in failure, God is faithful. Nothing from nothing is nothing but something. Is the something, though, that remains what you did contrary to what God wanted, or is it that in which God says, I've invested in you? I don't want it to be something that's just something. I want it to be something that is of me, something that satisfies how I've made you, not something that later on you will have to say, ain't got no satisfaction. Might as well do some jumping jack flash. You'll see the correlation between that. It's actually quite an inane song because part of that chorus is that it's a gas, 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 and I'm going, what does that mean? That was a term back in the 60s that a generation used to say, what I'm doing right now is awesome. We use awesome. Back then, it's a gas. I think of gas entirely different. I think of a propane can that leaks occasionally, and I can smell that garlicky smell. I think of gas that my car wants and that my wallet doesn't want to render. I think of, at times, those things that... It's poison. But there's a moral to what Solomon is penning. It's for us in these times. Lord, help me that in my stupidity I can change that qualifier by saying, correct me then. Why? Because he's a loving corrector. If you've been under a teacher, the tutelage of educators, you'll, you can separate the ones who really are way too hard, way too heavy-handed. But they also need to be comparatively sorted from those who are way too compassionate, 
not willing to stand the ground in the authority that they have. We have kind of that problem in schools because with the dysfunction of home, students aren't trained to be able to sit disciplined in class. You have to understand, God is a God of discipline, of sound correction, but also deep compassion and mercy. People need to understand that when you're willing to say, Lord, correct me, he'll do it. He'll do it with compassion. He'll do it with mercy, grace. Because why? You've been inscribed in the palms of his hands. He loves us. Moving into the next verse, a good man obtains favor from the Lord. What a great verse after that narration. A good man obtains favor from the Lord. Where do you get your goodness from? Paul would say, there's nothing good that dwells in me. Where do you get your goodness from? You get your goodness from the Spirit of God residing in you because the attributes of a God of love who loves you to the degree that he will correct you to liberate you, that God whose name identifies with love exclusively is the one by whom you obtain favor. And it shows the Spirit of God, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. We land on that attribute because God has given you goodness. When you sense and feel and know the love of God, because the Spirit of God dwells in you, you cannot help but translate that in some act of good that manifests itself through you apart from anything you think of yourself. It is transformative. Have you ever had God's goodness demonstrated to you by someone who actually you're surprised? Where did that come from? Why were they considering me? Who am I? worthy of such thoughtfulness. It's God. It's his goodness. Because you've obtained favor from the Lord. But notice this, the contrast, and what you don't want to be, is that a man of wicked intentions, he will condemn. Wicked men with sinister intentions only for a moment get away with something but they will not get away from God. And ultimately his correction, because he desires that none should perish, there's a season which seemingly they're getting away with it, but they do not have feet to outrun God, both as one who pursues their soul, but also who will pursue with vengeance their correction. It's important to know that about God, that in the end, he gets to punctuate what he says concerning his word, what he says concerning his adjudication. It's important to know that, that even men with wicked intentions, God has an intended plan for that person in the knowledge of God, in the surrender of their soul to him, to prosper. What wonderful testimonies there have been. 
Verse 3, a man is not established by wickedness. That's why very often even men are permitted to fail. Because when you don't have God, no matter how a person justifies themselves and whatever they do, to God's eyes, it's pride and it's wicked. It has no outcome that's intended for the eternal. Man is not established by wickedness. Businesses, churches take great honor to be able to boast about when they were established. And one of the things that we discover, which we mentioned in 1 Corinthians today, was that God's the one that establishes what it is we do, who it is we are, on the foundation of Jesus Christ and Him alone, and what we build on with gold and silver and precious stones. On the functioning level, it does not mean that you cannot use wood. It's saying that in contrast, the permanence of the gold and of the silver, of the precious gems, the stones, those aren't going anywhere. They're not subject by the elements to the degree that wood, hay, and stubble are. There are things in our life that are subject to the elements. They just will not last. Relationships, relationships that are founded by God and in marriage, they're meant to last, but sometimes they don't. Verse 4, a nice segue into this. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband. Pause there. Ephesians tells us that the Lord is the head of the church. We are his bride. And he says clearly that the man is head of the wife. That's what the scriptures declare. This is actually a pinnacle moment in my opinion, of a great understanding of the significance of a wife in a marriage. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband. There is not, in my opinion, many who would be able to argue, even according to Proverbs, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Men will not be able to say in heaven, well, look what you gave me. Because in origin, I gave you a favor. Too bad you didn't understand it. Too bad you didn't treat her as such. But the importance here is that the implication is that as man is head over her, she is the crown of who he is. You take the crown from a man who's king of his castle, he simply is a commoner meaning that it's intended that though the honor of a man in marriage positionally is over his wife, she crowns him in excellence with who she is. That's why even in times in which we see culturally the dysfunction or the breaking up of families, it doesn't change God's opinion about the value of both husband and wife being joined together as a cord of three, that third hidden cord, the larger part of an entwined rope, is the Lord. 
It's what makes that bond tight. And when it's seared on each end, as you understand, if you've handled rope, it is relatively impossible to let it unwind unless it has been cut. And of course, we know what happens when lines have been cut. They either have to get knitted together with a knot. That's fine. But God would say, that's what I want. I want there to be in the excellence, in the position that I've afforded to a wife, her to be the crown of her husband. And again, I would have to say to men, sometimes maybe we deserve to be crowned, not with a crown, but a conch. We've used that word before. Oh, I got crowned today. Really? I missed the ceremony? No, you missed the beating. But when you consider the exaltation that that Proverbs gives, it has much weight. It's worthy of consideration for both men to give exceedingly great honor to the woman and for the woman to understand it's her place to be the crown of her husband. You're not getting demoted. The question is, will there be promotion of each of you to the purpose that God has called? For the power that is ours in a marriage, it's pretty awesome. Crown your husband because God has given you favor to do so an assignment. Crown him. Husbands are to love their wives. The Lord loves his bride. Husbands are positioned to love their brides. It's not always what we would say, easy in mechanics, but it doesn't change the truth. We have to do better, and we have to do according to his word. Verse 4 closes, and it simply says this, but she who causes shame is like rottenness in his bones. That sounds derogatory, but the bottom line is, is that in our culture today, shame is unnecessarily becoming a cause for not correction, but acceptation. The blame game. But Adam started it, and we saw that. How did he start it? Well, somehow, some way. He lost his crown in the garden. Somehow, some way, Eve took a different publisher than the publication that God had given to him to give to her. Somehow, he lost a respect for her when he blamed God for giving her to him. It goes back that far. So whatever we see in our days today, it isn't new. It's just dressed differently. It's just that more of us are permitting it to be something that's acceptable as opposed to unacceptable. Everybody has a responsibility. And the greater intention we have of standing in correction to move in the direction that God has purposed us to go, it's the best way. The outcome is clear that God gets the glory even if in a season it has goriness to it, 
a bloodletting. God's the one that heals those wounds, bandages them up. The interesting thing about the Proverbs is it smacks you in the face on both sides. I haven't been as godly. Oh my goodness, there's wickedness that's abounding. Where am I in this? Am I centered or am I off-center? I want to be centered. Why? Because nothing from nothing is nothing. But something's got to be better. In the end, because God has purposed for me to have a life that glorifies him. I stood corrected on the long walk to the house with my dad as he shuffles through the papers. I had nothing to say except I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Can I go back to school? We'll see about that. And by the way, to make that a happy ending, he was the man who heard that there was a teaching position opened for me when I graduated. I was so tired after that hard, hard, arduous season of being in school for almost a year and a half, catching up on a degree that I had let slip between my hands. I'll get to the point. My uncle was the catalyst, living with him down in San Clemente. He was a banker, vice president of Great Western Savings and Loan. He was a big man. He looked at me. I was named after him. He said, Richard, where are you in college right now? I, Uncle Dick, probably, probably two years out, probably a year and a half out. <laughs> he think, oh, poor boy. Are you, are you doing good in life? I was pumping gas now in Sacramento. I wasn't doing all that well. And he looked me in the eyes and said, get back to school now. Get on with your life. And I thought, aren't I, as your namesake, a special person in your home right now? <laughs> get back to school. I'm going to call your dad. You are? Yeah. We're going to work to get you where you belong. And that was the beginning of it. Now that was the getting back to school initiated by whom I was named after. That was the beginning of the arduous task of turn, turn, turn. But dad had the privilege with his ear to the ground said, Rich, I'm giving you a call. What's up? I need you to come down from Corvallis. Why? I've got a job interview with you or for you with a principal out in a rural country school. Dad, I am so tired. I can't even think about wanting to teach right now. I just want to, nope, you're not doing anything other than pursuing the end of the goal. You have a purpose. You have an interview. On Monday, I want you dressed and ready for it. Okay, I'll do it. And that interview, that very interview, he said, Bill Carter, Rich, I need you. I want you. I will write a personal letter without knowing anything about you to TSPC. 
I'll have you run it up there and you'll be an employee in the next two days. Tell me you'll work with us. My class, this class that you'd come into has chased off three substitutes and sent one permanent teacher into the hospital. <laughs> Tell me you'll come and be one of my teachers on staff. And I'm recalling the Sidney Poitier movie, To Serve With Love, and going, oh God, no. But God still had even other plans for me. The reason being that I say this is that in succession of obedience, God led me to a point in which I stand before you today, but I stood correction along the way.